Well, uh, nice to be with you again in Moodyspern. Thanks for the invitation, Graham, to be here. If you have a Bible and would like to follow um, along, I want to try and read from uh, the book of Acts, chapter 18. Acts, chapter 18. And I will read from the first verse. Yeah, good point. So Acts chapter 18, and reading from verse 1, and I'm reading from the NIV. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed uh, no um, concern uh, whatsoever. At the end of verse 17, just a prayer, please, uh, before we spend a minute or two looking at this passage of Scripture, Lord, help us. We humbly pray as we come now to think about your word and the activity of um, the Apostle Paul. 
in Corinth and how you blessed him, how you came to reassure him and comfort him. And we pray that you'll speak to us and speak into our context and into our individual lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if it's uh, maybe, anyway, whatever. So I had a bit of a look through the sermon archive to see what I um, had spoken of on in, in, in past weeks, months, and years. And uh, I, I, I noticed that um, I've only spoken, I think, on 1 Corinthians once. And, and so I want to speak a little bit on the founding of the church in 1 Corinthians and and maybe at some point in the future, I might pick up on one or two incidents in the book of 1 Corinthians. I have spoken once on the founding of the church in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. And Acts chapter 18 obviously follows on from Acts 16. Um, so uh, in, in Philippi, what happened um, was that... Uh, Paul preached the gospel to, um, a, 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 first of all, to a lady called Lydia and her friends who were down at the riverside um, praying together. He arrived as a missionary, preached the gospel to them. She became a believer. Then the next person to become, um, the next person to become a, a, a Christian in Philippi was a slave girl. You'll remember uh, Paul. She was uh, under the control of a, of a demon that was destructive and um, really tormenting her. And she was set free from that kind of bondage and control. And she became the second member of the church in Philippi. And the third member, of course, was um, a, a, a Philippian jailer, a rough and tumble Philippian jailer, who one night uh, after an earthquake asked the missionaries who had been put into jail what they should do, what he should do to become a Christian. So that's how the church in Philippi began. Anyway, a whole ruckus uh, erupted, and that's how Paul and Silas ended up in prison. And eventually, when he was released, it seemed prudent to Paul that he should leave Philippi. So he went. The next stop was a place called Thessalonica. So if you can picture the top of the Aegean Sea on a map, sometime you might be able to look at it. Right at the top is Philippi. So he makes his way around the corner a little bit to a place called Thessalonica. And then he stays a short time in Thessalonica, and a church is born there or founded there. But again, there was a bit of a ruckus in, um, in, in uh, Thessalonica and Jason, uh, where, where the church who's in whose house Paul and his missionary team were staying was dragged into an arena and, and so on. There's a whole sort of riot in Thessalonica, and again, Paul had to leave. So he went to Athens, he spent a few days in Athens, and then he went 50 miles west to the city of Corinth. And uh, Corinth is a really interesting place. Um, it, it's it's located on a very, very narrow neck of land that connects the southern part of Greece with the northern part of Greece. Very little thin strip of land. And in the wintertime, the Mediterranean Sea was so boisterous that shipping back in the first century largely shut down. 
And so ships would, and, and because Corinth was on this narrow neck of land, there was a harbor at one side of the neck of land and a harbor at the other side. And in many senses, throughout the winter months, it became the crossroads of the ancient world because ships would come into one harbor, their cargo would be offloaded and it would be rolled across, across a road called the Dolcus, which was about three and a half miles long, rolled across the Dolcus and loaded onto ships on the other side, and then they would continue down the Aegean Sea. So it, it was a very sort of um, prosperous place and an, a, a busy commercial centre, lots of stuff happening in, in Corinth. There were dockers, there were warehouse keepers, there were merchants selling their goods and buying goods, there were bankers, people who had money and people who were keeping money. And there was a whole world of activity in this place called um, Corinth. Um, it was also home of the Isthmian Games every second year, the Isthmian Games, because it was situated on an isthmus. So people would come a bit like uh, they would come and watch the Olympic Games, wherever the Olympic Games are held. People would come to Corinth and watch these sporting events and they would live in tents for the duration of the games out and around Corinth. So it's a busy place, particularly when the games were on. And we know that there was at least one set of games on during Paul's visit um, to uh, Corinth. And uh, another thing that's worth just throwing, in, throwing into the mix about Corinth, I feel like a lecture boring me to tears with information about Corinth, but it is helpful just to paint the picture. Um, of the kind of place that Paul visited. Another thing that's worth just remembering is that there was a huge um, hill overlooking Corinth. And at the top of this hill, there was a, a temple dedicated to the goddess of love. And uh, in its heyday, and of course, when Paul visited Corinth, it wasn't, it wasn't its heyday. It was well past its heyday. But in its heyday, there were a thousand prostitutes that served in that temple by day and descended on Corinth by night to ply their trade. And as well as worshipping the goddess of love, you could also uh, worship almost anything that you wanted in Corinth. There were temples and altars dedicated to this God and that God and the other kind of God. So any kind of worship you want, religious experience you wanted, you could have got it in Corinth. You could have worshipped the emperor, Caesar Augustus. Um, you, could have, you could have been involved in, in, in the worship of the imperial cult, basically anything. And, and there, were, there was any kind of religious experience um, available in Corinth. Well, all I wanna say, it was to this town this city of about 200,000 people. It was to this city that Paul came with nothing but the gospel. He had never been to a gospel coalition conference on church planting, or he just came with nothing but the gospel in his heart and a burning passion to share this good news with others. And it was in this city that he founded the church that we know of as uh, the church of the Corinthians. Now, when he gets there, uh, I want to just pick up on three things. I want you, first of all, to look at his gospel partners. Secondly, I want you to think about his gospel work. What did he actually do? And thirdly, I want you to think about gospel opposition. So those are the three things 
that I'm going to camp on in relation to Paul's work, the Apostle Paul's work in Corinth. First of all, gospel partners. And his first gospel partners in Corinth were a married couple. Um, first, Corinth wasn't an easy city to enter, 200, maybe 250, but certainly 200,000 people 50 miles west of, west of Athens, so you've got all kinds of philosophies, the Epicureans, the Stoics, all giving voice to their teaching in Corinth. And uh, you've got people making business, a lot of materialism, a lot of people concerned about profit and loss and, and business. It's not an easy place just to walk in with nothing but the gospel and begin to think about how am I going to make an impact with the good news about Jesus here? I mean, can you imagine walking into somewhere like Glasgow and there's absolutely no churches whatsoever? You just walk into town and say, well, how am I going to start planning a church here? That's what Paul did. First Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, describes a little bit about his own feelings as he entered Corinth. It says, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. I proclaimed to you the testimony about God and I came in weakness and fear and trembling. In other words, when he entered Corinth, his knees were knocking, and he wondered where he would ever begin in a secular-driven place like Corinth to make an impact with the gospel. Sometimes we think to ourselves, oh, it was fine for the apostles. I mean, they were kind of super, superhuman individuals and never had any fears whatsoever. But the truth is, it wasn't fine for the apostles. They had the same fears and the same weaknesses and the same concerns that you and I have. But they did it. And because they did it, people were converted and churches were born and the gospel spread across the world. In Corinth, Paul met this couple called Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla. Their names are mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, for example, you can uh, find them mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, Aquila and Priscilla. What's interesting about Romans 16, verse 3, is that Priscilla's name is mentioned first. That's really unusual. Uh, that's not in any way a sexist comment. It's just really unusual in the first century context. For a wife to be mentioned before her husband, usually it would be the husband and then the wife that's mentioned. And the reason that she's mentioned first is, is, is it is thought at least that she came from one of the high profile families in Rome, maybe even the Prisca family, hence her name Priscilla. And she's a, a very well-to-do individual, and that's why her name is mentioned all quite often, not always, but quite often before her husband's. When Paul arrived in uh, Corinth, he looked this couple up. Now, the Jews had recently been expelled from Rome. So Corinth is not Rome, several hundred miles away from Rome. The Jews had been kicked out of Rome because of a whole riot that had emerged surrounding a person called Crestus. They'd been fighting about Crestus. Most people think that that's a reference to Christ. Roman emperor wouldn't make any distinction between Jews that believed the Messiah was still to come and those who believed that the Messiah had come. So you know what he did? He said, I'll tell you what you will do. Instead of bringing your debates about this person called Crestus, the whole lot of you can, get, can leave town. 
And he kicked them all out of town, all of the Jews. And amongst those who were forced to leave Rome in AD 49, there was a couple called Aquila and Priscilla. And as they were driven, expelled from Rome, they wondered, where will we go? Where should we settle? Where will we go and find safety? And they came to the city called Corinth. And there's a good possibility that they were Christians before they arrived in Corinth. There's a strong possibility that they were Christians back in Rome, that they'd been converted by somebody who had attended the day of Pentecost, become a Christian, brought the gospel back to Rome, that they had become Christians through that person's influence. And here they are in Rome, in, in Corinth, the only Christian couple in the entire city. And here comes this beleaguered missionary who has been beaten senseless in Philippi. I mean, his back must have looked like a field of jelly and driven out of Thessalonica, laughed at in Athens. Here comes this beleaguered missionary full of weakness and trembling. And who is there in the providence of God to meet him? Only Aquila and Priscilla to offer him a home, give him a job so that he can buy food and, and just survive so that he can just take a little bit of respite and be encouraged in this work that God has called him to. It's no mistake. It must have been a painful experience for them to have been expelled from Rome and forced to think about, well, where will we live now? Extremely painful. But it was no mistake because I think God had them in the right place at the right time to encourage their beleaguered, his beleaguered missionary servant. Don't you, don't you think that God's hand was in this? And the truth is that God's hand is in and on all of our lives. Um, Joseph found that out, didn't he, in the Old Testament? Remember how he was sold into slavery by his brothers? And then he, he was accused, falsely accused, of making advances towards his master's wife. And then he ended up in prison. And just when he thought he had his ticket out of prison, they forgot all about him and he had to stay two more years in prison. And he must have thought to himself, goodness, I'm in the wrong place. I'm the wrong guy. I shouldn't be here. But he was in the right place at the right time. And when, when a, a prime minister was needed for Egypt, who would somehow produce enough food to preserve a nation that would give the savior to the world eventually, Joseph was on hand at the right moment to take the stage of history. But that is no less true of our lives. Surely it's no less true of your life and my life. It's no mistake that I live or that you live where you live. And it's no coincidence that you work where you work. And it's not an accident that you have influence in, in the circles that you have influence in. That's all providential divine appointments. God has sent you there, placed you there, just in the same way that he placed Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth to welcome this beleaguered servant of, of God. Well, the second thing that I want you to think about is the tent-making team. Um, we know from a number of places that when he arrived, when Paul arrived in Corinth, his money had run out. He was skint. He had a dime or a dollar to his name. Philippians 4.15, he says, um, as you Philippians know, 
In the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, so when I set out from you, not one church shared with me, he says, in the matter of giving and receiving except you. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, he says this, And when I was in need, when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. So it's clear that Paul arrived in Corinth absolutely skinned and uh, wondered how in the world he would ever uh, make his living. And so how he would survive, how he would buy food. And so he worked with Aquila and Priscilla during the day. And at the weekends, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and, and presented them with the good news about Jesus. But during the week, uh, at least it would appear that he worked as a tent maker, sat with them, sewed his animal skins into, in, into larger sheets, and with these animal skins made tents. It was a great place to sell tents, since the Isthmian Games people would come and live in tents all around Corinth just to watch the competition. So it, they were onto a good thing, incidentally, but, but Paul was a tent maker. And he would make tents during the day, and he would reason in the synagogue at the weekend. And of course, it's from this passage that we get this um, whole concept of tent making. You've heard about tent makers. Often Christians uh, will take use their profession or their trade or whatever it is that they have, and they will use that to gain access to uh, what we call closed access countries and they will go and teach or they will go and, and work as engineers or go on. And when they are there, they will endeavor in those closed access countries to shine for Jesus, just to live out the Christian life and share in whatever way they can the good news about Jesus. And it's from this text that we get this whole idea of being tent makers because Paul, Paul is really financing himself. And, uh, Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Why would I think not, actually? Maybe there's someone here and God is speaking to you about using your profession to go to a far-off, closed country and to use your profession to gain access and, and to work there and live there and share the good news of the gospel. Why would I think that there wouldn't be someone in Moody's firm? And God is speaking to you about that very thing and wants you to follow through on it. But here's what I think, uh, and, and uh, don't be afraid to disagree with me because I, I'm used to people disagreeing with me in the student world, so don't, don't hesitate to disagree with me. I think all of us are tent makers. Every single one of us are tent makers because we make our living as we make our living. But beyond making our living and beyond working, surely it's our task to do what Paul did. Do what we can for the gospel. Do what we can for Jesus. Shine as we can for Jesus. Isn't, isn't that all of our responsibilities? That we do what we do. We live where we live. Our circumstances are our circumstances. But in the middle of all of that, we do what Paul did in Corinth. And we do what we can to shine Jesus. And so I ask you and I ask myself this question, are we really shining for Jesus? Are we really tent makers? When was the last time that we made an active, intentional effort to impact somebody, even just with a sentence, for uh, the Lord Jesus?
Well, um, a little bit about his gospel partners, um, a little bit about his gospel um, work. When the two boys that he had left up in Thessalonica, uh, Timothy and Silas joined him incidentally. He came back, they came down to Corinth, they had a gift from the church at Philippi, and when they brought that gift, he was able to stop tent making and just give himself entirely to preaching the gospel, which he did. And what I want you to notice is the blaspheming Jews that he encountered. It seems that uh, as he reasoned uh, in, in the synagogue, Saturday by Saturday, telling them about Jesus, the Jews were happy as long as he spoke about the Messiah. So as long as that was his track, speak about the Messiah, that's fine. Tell us about how the Old Testament is looking forward to somebody coming in the future, a great deliverer, how he will grow up as a tender plant amongst, him, amongst us, and we will esteem him not as the prophet Isaiah said, or that he will be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And he took them on a journey through the Old Testament and he showed them how Jesus is our high priest now, how this coming Messiah would be our Savior. But here's when the, the problem set in when he started to become specific. When he started to say, and Jesus of Nazareth is this Messiah. That's when it all went pear-shaped. That's when the Jews turned against him in absolute hostility. When he started to be specific and say, Jesus of Nazareth is, 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 the, is, the, is, the, is, the, is the Messiah, the, the Jews turned against him so much so that they kicked him out of the synagogue. And uh, whoever this man, Titius Justice, was, he was a brave individual, don't you think? He allowed him to come and, and uh, set up shop in his house right next door to the synagogue. If they've kicked you out, so be it. Come and set up shop in my house and start preaching the gospel um, there. Now, there's a ton of things that we could say about that. Um, we could say this. Not everyone in Corinth became a Christian. There was fierce hostility. And we are naive if we think that everybody that we meet in Moody'sburg and further afield, we are naive if we think that everybody is going to become a Christian. It has never been that way. There has always been opposition, fierce opposition to the gospel. But here's the thing that, that strikes me. That What strikes me is that some people did become Christians, and I'll come to that in just a minute or two. But here's what strikes me. It's the nimbleness of the Apostle Paul that really spoke to me. He's getting nowhere in one setting. So he decides, he shakes out the dust from his clothes and he decides to go next door to another setting. So here's a thinking man in his evangelism. And he's thinking to himself, it's not working here. I'm not getting anywhere in this context. These Jews do not want to listen to me. I'm going to turn now and go in a different direction with my preaching and evangelism. I'm going to go and start preaching to the Gentiles. And why I say that struck me is I just, I'm, I'm struck by the creativeness of Paul and the thoughtfulness of Paul. And I wish that the Christian church in the 21st century would be as creative and thoughtful when it comes to reaching people with the gospel. We ought surely to start thinking about, well, if this isn't working, 
and we've done this for 60 years and we're dying, maybe we need to think about doing it slightly differently. Maybe it requires a different approach. Maybe we should go next door and set up in the house of tedious justice rather than beating our heads off the wall in, in the synagogue. There's a creativeness, a thoughtfulness. And I want to encourage you to think about how you can reach the people of Moody Spur. And are there things that you need to do different to be effective? Those are all questions I think that healthy churches ask. Because there's certainly questions that Paul was asking. Here's the third thing. There's a believing synagogue ruler. Uh, Titius Justice was a brave individual. Um, and, and he offers uh, Saul or Paul his house and says, come and set up shop in my house. If you're done in the synagogue, come next door. And it seems that he became a Christian and his whole household became a Christian. What, what a joy that was, isn't it? Just amazing that your whole family would become Christians and follow Jesus. And when you get to heaven and you look around for them, every single one of them would be there. How joyful and wonderful is that? Yeah. Tidious Justice, his whole family became Christians and many Greeks in Corinth became Christians, we're told. Many Greeks in Corinth became, not just some, but many. God saved multitudes of people in Corinth from a Greek or Gentile background. They weren't Jews. So the gospel worked. God doesn't always work according to our timetable. I'm sure Paul was a bit frustrated when he was getting nowhere in the synagogue. And he must have been tempted to give up, don't you think? Oh, I'd just go home. Stuff, this isn't working. I'll just go back, back. I'll just make my way back now. I'm right at the coast. I could catch a ship back to Antioch where I came from. But he, he presses on and he perseveres. And eventually God breaks through and God does something just remarkable. And, and sometimes we give up too easily and too soon. Give up praying for people too easily and too soon. We, we kind of walk away and say, I'm done. It's not worked. But maybe we're on the, on, maybe we're on the edge of a breakthrough. <laughs> Maybe God is about to break through if we just keep pressing on. That's what happened in, in, in Corinth. And, and the gospel transformed lives in Corinth. And the gospel still transforms lives in the 21st century. The good news that Jesus can forgive every sin and give us all of his goodness and righteousness so that we become accepted in him in the eyes of the Father, and we can be reconciled to this God that we've been estranged from, and that we can know him as Father, and that he will watch over our lives. That message, the gospel message, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we can become the righteousness of God in him, that message transforms lives still, not only in Corinth, but still in the 21st century, and that's the message that we need to hold up to people. Well, Here's the last thing, gospel opposition. Well, there was some fierce opposition. First of all, I want you to notice that there was a promise given. Despite all the positive things that were taking place in Corinth, Paul seems to have become somewhat discouraged. He seems to have become somewhat antsy, a little bit nervous. Um, we sometimes think these first century apostles were invincible. Well, the Lord spoke to him in a vision in verse 9 and says, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking and don't be silent. I am with you. 
No one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. Now, I don't believe that God would have told him not to be afraid if he wasn't afraid. I think God came to tell him no one will hurt you because he was afraid that people were going to hurt him. See, he had seen the whole thing play out before. He had been in Philippi when the Jews turned against him, and he ended up having been beaten senseless by a Roman whip or a Roman taskmaster and then thrown into prison. He'd seen the whole thing unfold before. He saw the hostility of the Jews, and he knew what was coming. Did he have a sense that things were turning against him in Corinth? And did he feel in his heart about doing a runner? And God had to come to him and say in a dream one night, don't you dare do a runner. No one's going to hurt you. I am going to protect you because I've got many people I still want you to reach in this city. That's what God came to him and said. And uh, don't stop speaking. Don't be afraid. I'm going to protect you and I am going to uh, be with you. Now, um, I, I don't know if you feel a bit like Paul. Maybe you feel a bit like you want to do a runner from church. Nice to go to a big church, eh? Where it's comfortable and easy. And there's not much work to do. And it's not a slog. And that would be comfortable and easy and, and nice. <laughs> Paul would maybe like to go and visit some of the churches he had already founded, enjoy their fellowship. But God says, don't you dare go anywhere. I want you to stay right here and I am going to protect you and I am going um, to be with you. And maybe God wants you just to settle and stay and serve just where you are rather than doing a runner because doing a runner is the easy thing. God says, don't you go anywhere, Paul. Stay right there. And what I want you to notice is not only was there a promise given, but there was a promise fulfilled. God did protect. God doesn't protect everybody. If, if God protected all missionaries, there would be no Christian martyrs. There'd be no Christian missionaries in prison. But across the world, there are missionaries, Christian gospel preaching missionaries in prison. God doesn't protect everybody all of the time because that's not his will. But it was his will to protect Paul in these circumstances and give him the assurance that he needed at this juncture in his life, because I think Paul felt in his heart, I can't take another beating. I'm not sure I can face anymore. I've had it up to here with opposition. I'm just going to jump on a board and go back to Antioch. God, just at the right time, just at the right time, comes and says, Paul, don't do a runner. I'll be with you. I'll, I'll protect you in this city. Won't protect you in every city. One day you'll be arrested. In fact, one day, Paul, your head will be chopped off. But on this occasion, at this time, I know that you can't take any more. I'll be with you. God comes at just the right time. Haven't you sensed over the years how good God is? And at just the right time and in just the right way, he comes with his little tokens of encouragement. And just when you need him most, he always shows up. He is always there. He always comes through for us. How good is God in the lives of his people as he ministers to the Apostle Paul? So the three things were fairly simple, weren't they? There were gospel partners, Aquila and Priscilla. Could you be an Aquila and Priscilla 
in somebody else's life, just there for them at the right moment. Gospel work. Think about the creativeness of Paul. He's up against it in the synagogue, so he goes next door and he sets up shop there and he turns from the Jews to the Greeks because he's a thinker and he's creative. And he thinks, you know, there are hundreds, thousands of people that still need to hear this message. I'm going to do it differently. And God bless them. And finally, gospel opposition. There was fierce opposition in, in, in Corinth. The Jews detested him. There was a whole riot uh, where he was dragged before the proconsul of Galleon. Of course, Galio wanted nothing to do with uh, the, the whole ruckus and the whole row. But the point that I just wanted you to pick up on is that God protected him because that's what he needed at that point in his life. And God is good and will provide just what we need um, when we need it. And just at the right time, whatever your needs are this morning, the truth is God can meet those needs in ways that you never even thought were possible. So I'm going to hand back to 